After reciting the Tashahud, Ta'awuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih V, Ayyadahullahu Ta'ala bin Nasrihi Al-Aziz stated, On one occasion, while speaking on the subject of the belief, i.e. the propagation of Islam, in one of his addresses, Hazrat Muslim Maud radiyallahu ta'ala anhu mentioned accounts from the life of Hazrat Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. Hazrat Muslim Maud radiyallahu ta'ala anhu stated, that in the battles which were fought after the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the Muslims were mostly in the minority. During the battle in Syria, there was a great shortage of soldiers. And so Hazrat Abu Ubaidah sent a letter to Hazrat Umar anhu, saying that the enemy was in far greater numbers and thus requested to be sent reinforcement. And so Hazrat Umar took an assessment of the situation and found it impossible to form another battalion because the young men of the tribes in and around Arabia had either been killed or they were already part of the army. Subsequently, Hazrat Umar organized a gathering to seek consultation and people from various tribes were invited and this matter was put before them. During this, they suggested that there was one tribe where some men could be found. Hazrat Umar instructed one of his officers to immediately go there and gather the young men of that tribe. He also wrote to Hazrat Abu Ubaidah stating that he was going to send 6,000 men to support him and they would reach him in a few days. Hazrat Umar stated that 3,000 men would reach him from such and such tribe and he was sending Amr bin Mahdi Karib as an equivalent of the remaining 3,000. Hazrat Muslim Maud further states that if one of our youths was sent to confront 3,000 men, he will say that this was a completely illogical thing and will say that has the Khalifa lost his senses, can a single person confront 3,000 men? However, how strong was the faith of those individuals? 
When Hazrat Abu Ubaidah received the letter from Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he read it and told his soldiers to rejoice as Amr bin Madi Karib would be reaching them the following day. The following day, the soldiers welcomed Amr bin Madi Karib with great passion and raised slogans. The enemy thought that the Muslims were perhaps reinforced by an army of a hundred or two hundred thousand men and that is why they were rejoicing so much. However, it was only Amr bin Madi Karib by himself. Following this, the battalion of three thousand men reached them as well and the Muslims defeated the enemy. For a single person to confront three thousand men in a battle with swords is virtually impossible. Hazrat Muslim Allah states that during a debate, a single man can convey his message to several thousands. However, these people gave such importance to the words of the Khalifa of the time that when Hazrat Umar sent Amr bin Madi Karib as an equivalent of 3,000 soldiers, the soldiers did not raise any objection as to how a single person could confront 3,000 men. Rather, they considered him to be equivalent to 3,000 men and welcomed him in an excellent manner. And as a result of this welcome of the Muslims, the hearts of the enemy were filled with fear and they believed that perhaps an army of a hundred or two hundred thousand men came to reinforce the Muslims. As such, they were defeated during the battle and fled. Hazrat Muslim Allah states that at present, we must comfort our hearts in this manner as well. This incident was narrated by Hazrat Muslim in relation to how to do tabliq in Europe, for example in Spain and Sicily, etc. Now I shall mention the conquests that took place in Egypt. Among those was the Battle of Farma. Farma was a well-known city of Egypt which was situated to the east of the Mediterranean Sea and Palusi, which was one of the tributaries of the River Nile and was situated on the mountain. According to Alama Shibli Nomani, after the victory at Baitul Maqdis, upon the insistence of Hazrat Amr bin Alas, Hazrat Umar who sent Hazrat Amr bin al-As with an army of 4,000 towards Egypt, but with the instruction that they must return if they receive his letter prior to reaching Egypt. They reached Arish when the letter from Hazrat Umar was received, in which he instructed them to not advance any further. However, seeing as the instruction was conditional, Hazrat Umar said that since they were within the confines of Egypt, Therefore, they would advance from Arish to Farma. There is a book called Al-Iktifa which covers the Muslim battles and it is written therein that Hazrat Amr bin al-As received the letter of Hazrat Umar anhu, having reached a place called Rafah. But he did not take the letter from the messenger out of fear that it would contain the instruction from Hazrat Umar to return. Instead, he continued marching forth until he reached a small village between Rafa and Arish. He then inquired about the village and was informed that this was within the confines of Egypt. He then asked for the letter to be brought and read it, and it was written that he and the Muslims accompanying him should all return. And so, Hazrat Amr bin Alas asked his companions, that, Do you not see that this is Egypt? They replied in the affirmative. He then said that the leader of the faithful, Ayy Hazrat Umar radiallahu instructed, that if I received the letter prior to reaching Egypt, I should return. But since I have received it having entered the land of Egypt, therefore let us go forth in the name of Allah. It is also mentioned in another narration that Hazrat Amr bin al-As 
was in Palestine and he advanced with his companions to Egypt without permission. Hazrat Umar was displeased with this and so he wrote a letter to Hazrat Umar bin al-As and he received this letter when he was close to Arish but he did not read it until he had reached Arish. It was written in this letter that Umar bin al-Khattab to Umar bin al-As Thereafter, you certainly have been going to Egypt with your companions and there is a large army of the Byzantines there whilst you are few in number. And I swear that it would have been better that you had not taken them with you. And so if you have not yet reached Egypt, you must return. On the way to Firma, the Muslim army did not encounter a single Byzantine soldier and in fact the Egyptians welcomed them in various places. And it was in Firma that the very first confrontation took place. There are various narrations with reference to Hazrat Amr bin al but the one that seems correct is that the letter was received after having reached Arish, which is situated within the borders of Egypt. It cannot be that he continued to make excuses and to only open the letter after reaching Egypt. Nevertheless, since they had already reached Egypt, the only option was to advance forward as the believers do not retreat. In any case, the Byzantines received news that Hazrat Amr bin al-As was coming with a small army with insufficient preparation and therefore could not lay a siege for too long. The Byzantines thought that since they were better prepared and in a greater number, Therefore, they would easily defeat them. And so, the Byzantines secured themselves in their fortress. Hazrat Umar bin Alas had come to know of the military power of the Byzantines and that they were much greater in weapons and in number. He therefore made plans to either seize Firma, whereby they would launch a surprise attack and have the rampart doors opened, or to then remain patient in their besiegement until the residents ran out of food and came forth out of desperation. Thus, he laid siege to the city. On the one hand, the Muslims were tightening their siege and on the other, the Byzantines were stubborn in their persistence. As such, the siege continued for many months. Sometimes the Byzantine forces would emerge for a few skirmishes but would then retreat and the Muslims would always prevail in these skirmishes. One day, some of the Byzantine forces came forth in combat against the Muslims, and the Muslims prevailed over them. When the Byzantines retreated to their fort in defeat, the Muslims swiftly pursued them, and some of the Muslims beat the Byzantines to the rampart gates and opened them, thus clearing the path to a clear victory. The conquest of Bilbis and the circumstances in which it happened are as follows. After the conquest of Firma, as Hazrat Amr bin al-As was setting out for Bilbis, he was intercepted by the Byzantine forces. Bilbis is a city located approximately 30 miles from Fustat en route to Syria, and the Muslims were intercepted to prevent them from reaching the fort of Babylon. In Asian terminology, 
The land of Egypt was referred to as Babylon, and particularly the region where Fustat was settled is known as Babylon. The Byzantines intended to fight there, but Hazrat Umar bin Alas told them not to be hasty and to hold off until they had heard his proposal so that there would be no excuses or evasions later. Furthermore, Hazrat Umar bin Alas also said to them to send Abu Maryam as an emissary to represent them. And so they deferred the battle and sent the two emissaries. Both these delegates were priests from Bilbis. Hazrat Umar bin al-As presented them with the options of either accepting Islam or paying the jizya. And along with this, he recounted the words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, about the people of Egypt. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that you will conquer Egypt, a land where the unit of Kirat is used to measure. And when you conquer that land, treat its people kindly, because they have a right over you and are among your kin. Or he stated that they have a right over you and you share ancestral fathers. Upon hearing this, the two emissaries said that this is a very distant relationship that can only be fulfilled by the prophets and asked to leave and deliberate on their decision, upon which they would return. Hazrat Amr bin Alas told them that he would not be fooled and that he would give them a period of three days to carefully contemplate on the matter. Both the emissaries asked for an additional day for deliberation and so they were given an additional day. The two of them then returned to Mokukus, the leader of the Copts, and Artabun, the governor of Egypt appointed by the Byzantine emperor, and presented them with the proposal from the Muslims. Artabun denied the proposal and was bent on war, and he launched an assault on the Muslims overnight. The forces of Artabun are recorded to have been 12,000 in number and a great deal of Muslims were martyred in this conflict while the Byzantines lost a thousand soldiers to the battle and another 3,000 were imprisoned. Artabun fled the battlefield while some say that he was slain in this very battle. The Muslims continued to prevail over Artabun's forces until they reached Alexandria. Historians agree that the Muslims remained in Bilbis for a month during which time the battle continued and ultimately the Muslims were victorious. However, historians debate over whether or not this was an intense battle. During this battle, an incident took place that is a testament to the wisdom and moral superiority of the Muslims. When Allah the Almighty granted victory to the Muslims to conquer Bilbis, the daughter of Mokukus was imprisoned, whose name was Armanusa. She was his favourite and beloved daughter, whom he planned to marry off to Constantine, the son of Heraclius. However, she was not content with this marriage and took an excursion to Bilbis with her maid. In any case, when the Muslims had imprisoned her, Hazrat Umar bin Alas gathered the noble companions and recited the following words of Allah the Almighty. That is, is the reward of goodness anything but goodness?
Then, in reference to this verse, that is, Al Jazaul Ihsan illa Ihsan, he then reminded them by stating, the Mukukas sent a gift to our Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And so I am of the opinion that his daughter should be returned to him along with the entourage and servants and all the wealth that was seized. Everyone was in agreement with Hazrat Amr bin Alas, and accordingly Hazrat Amr bin Alas sent Armanusa to her father with great honour and dignity, along with all her jewellery and accompanying women and servants. On their journey back, one of Armanusa's maids remarked that they were protected in every direction by the Arabs. Upon this, Armanusa replied to her that she feels safe for her life and honour in the tents of the Arabs but does not consider her life to be safe in her father's fortress. When she reached her father, he was very depleased with how the Muslims had treated her. Then there is mention of the conquest of Umdunan. After the conquest of Bilbis, Hazrat Amr bin Alas was advancing along the desert's perimeter when he reached a place close to Umdunan which was located on the river Nile at the source of Trajan's canal. This canal was close to Suez and joined the city of Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea, whereas Bakia, a district in Cairo, is located today. And Umdunan was located at this very place during that time, which the Byzantines had fortified. And in the near vicinity were the river banks of the Nile, where many boats were ported. This area was to the north of Babylon, which was the largest fort of Egypt city. In this way, Umdunan could be considered the foremost defensive outpost for guarding this precious region, which the Egyptians cherished as the centre of operations for many past pharaohs. The Muslims set up camp near Umdunan, and the Byzantines sent their finest soldiers to their fort in Babylon and heavily reinforced their fort in Umdunan as they prepared for battle. According to the information received from the reconnaissance, Hazrat Amr bin Alas estimated that his forces were not enough to conquer Fort Babylon or to besiege it. And so he sent a messenger with a letter to Medina detailing the circumstances of his journey to Egypt, the intelligence on the enemy forts and the need for reinforcements in order to attack them. He also announced to his forces that reinforcements would join them shortly. Following this, he advanced towards Umdunan and laid siege, cutting the fort's supply of food and military equipment. The Byzantines in Fort Babylon didn't even consider coming out because they had already witnessed Artabun's outcome in Bilbis and they realised that they could not combat the Arabs in an open battlefield. However, the forces of Umdunan would periodically emerge for a skirmish, but would then retreat in failure. And so many weeks passed like this, and at the same time news arrived that the first reinforcements from the court of Khilafat were on their way and would arrive very soon. This news greatly supplemented the strength and resolve of the Muslims, and Hazrat Umar had sent 4,000 soldiers as reinforcements for the Muslim forces. He also appointed a leader for every thousand soldiers. 
and the names of those leaders were Hazrat Zubair bin Al-Awam, Hazrat Miqdad bin Aswad, Hazrat Ubada bin Samit, and Hazrat Maslama bin Mukhallad. According to one narration, Kharja bin Huzaifa was made the Emir in place of Hazrat Maslama bin Mukhallad. Along with sending reinforcements, Hazrat Umar wrote a letter to Hazrat Umar bin Al-As stating that now you have 12,000 soldiers with you and they will never be defeated on account of being small in number. The Byzantines set out along with the Copts to fight the Muslims and a fierce battle ensued between the two sides. Hazrat Umar bin Al-As devised a strategy whereby he divided the army into three parts. One was near Jabal al-Ahmar and the second was by the river Nile at a place called Umdanan and the remainder of the army set out to battle the enemy. As the two armies were engaged in fierce battle, the army hiding behind Jabal al-Ahmar came out and attacked from behind which scattered the ranks of the opposing army and they fled towards Umdanan. There, the second part of the Islamic army was waiting and stopped their path. In this way, the Byzantine army was trapped between the three Muslim armies and as a result of which the opponents suffered defeat. It is mentioned regarding the various other conquests that after the victory at Umdanan, the first place where Hazrat Umar bin Alas conquered was Fayyum and the chief of that area was killed in this battle. Then the Muslims faced the Byzantines in Ainushams. And before this, reinforcements of 8,000 soldiers came and met Hazrat Amr bin al-As. Hazrat Zubair bin al-Awam was the commander and Hazrat Ubada bin Samit, Hazrat Miqdad bin Aswad and Hazrat Maslama bin Mukhallad were also part of this. The Muslims were also victorious in this battle. Later, the Muslims gained victory over the entire area of Fayyum. One part of the Muslim army gained victory in two cities of the Manufia region, Isrib and Manuf. And with regards to the victory at the Babylon fort or Fustat, it is mentioned that after gaining victory at Umdanan, Hazrat Amr bin al-As marched towards the Babylon fort and laid siege to it. The area is known as Fustat and the reason for it being called this is that in Arabic tents are called Fustat. After successfully conquering the fort, when Hazrat Amr bin As commanded to leave, it so happened that a pigeon made a nest in Hazrat Amr's tent. When Hazrat Amr saw it, he instructed that the tent should remain there and then upon returning from Alexandria, he had a city established near the tent and it subsequently became known as Fustat. It is estimated that the protective forces inside the fort was around five or six thousand and they were armed in every way. Hazrat Amr began the siege of the Babylon fort and after Alexandria, this was one of the strongest forts and had been built with cement blocks. It was surrounded by water from the river Nile and since it was located on the river Nile, boats and ships would go straight to the door of the fort and so it was essential for important work. The Arabs were not properly equipped to attack such a fort 
and nor were they ready for this. And so, first and foremost, Hazrat Amr began making preparations to lay a siege. Mokukas, the ruler of Egypt, had already reached the fort before Hazrat Amr bin al-As and was preparing for battle. Hazrat Zubair rode his horse around all four sides of the ditch and would appoint the necessary number of soldiers to a given area. This siege continued for seven months continuously and the determination of victory or defeat could not be made. During this time, sometimes the Byzantines would come out of the castle to fight, but then they would go back inside. And during this time, Mokukas would send his envoys to Hazrat Amr bin al-As in attempts to reconcile and to strike firm. Hazrat Amr bin al-As sent Hazrat Ubadah bin Samit for reconciliation on three conditions, that either they accept Islam or pay the jizya, otherwise there will be a war. He also stated that a treaty should not be reached based on any other condition apart from these. Mogugas agreed to pay the jizya and went himself to Heraclius to seek permission. However, Heraclius did not accept this and in fact became quite angry and decided to expel him from the land as a result of this. When victory at the Babylon fort seemed to be delayed, Hazrat Zubair bin al-Awam stated that I am going to present my life as an offering in the way of Allah and I am hopeful that this will allow the Muslims to become victorious. Upon saying this, he took an unsheathed sword and using a ladder scaled the wall of the fort. Some other companions supported him as well and once they had scaled the wall, they raised slogans along with which the entire army raised slogans which caused the floor of the fort to vibrate as it were. The Christians realized that the Muslims had entered the fort upon which they aimlessly ran. Upon coming down from the wall, Hazrat Zubair opened the door to the fort and the entire army came inside and after some fighting they conquered the entire fort. Hazrat Amr bin al-As assured them security on the condition that the Byzantine army would take some provisions with them that would last them a few days and that they would leave the treasures and armor in the Babylon fort untouched as they were the spoils of the Muslims. Thereafter, Hazrat Amr bin Alas broke the domes and the fortified walls of the fort. And after conquering the Babylon fort, the Muslims gained various victories in different places and forts, of which the most prominent was Ternut, Nakyus, Sultes, and Kiryun. As for the conquest of Alexandria, it is stated that after the conquest of Fustat, Hazrat Umar granted permission for the conquest of Alexandria. There was a large battle with the Byzantines at a place between Alexandria and Fustat called Kiryon, which the Muslims eventually won. After that, the Byzantines did not come forward until Alexandria. Mokukas wished to pay the jizya and establish peace. However, the Byzantines pressured him as a result of which Mokukas sent a message to Hazrat Amr bin al-As stating that he and the cops would not be taking part in the battle and so they should be left unharmed. The cops remained separate from this and instead supported the Muslim army and began clearing paths and fixing the bridges for the Muslims. 
And during the siege of Alexandria, the Copts would provide the Muslims with provisions. And the significance of Alexandria can be gauged by the fact that when the Muslims conquered Alexandria, the city was considered as its capital city. And after Constantinople, this was known as the second largest city of the Byzantine rule. Furthermore, this was also the world's first trading city. And the Byzantines knew very well that if the Muslims were to conquer this city, then it would pose dire consequences for them. Therefore, it was out of this fear that Heraclius said that if Muslims overtook Alexandria, the Byzantines would be ruined. Heraclius started preparing to fight the Muslims himself, but died during his preparation, and his son Constantine succeeded him as the ruler. Alexandria was unique to its prominent structures, large forts, location and large number of guardians. And the siege of Alexandria continued for nine months. Upon this, Hazrat Umar was worried and wrote a letter stating that perhaps you have become driven by luxuries there, otherwise obtaining victory should not have taken this long. Along with this message, deliver a speech to the Muslims about jihad and then level an attack. After reading out this letter from Hazrat Umar Hazrat Umar bin al-As called Hazrat Ubadah bin Samit and handed him the flag. The Muslims then carried out an intense attack and thus conquered the city. Hazrat Umar then sent a messenger to Medina with instructions for him to ride as fast as he possibly could to convey this good news to Hazrat Umar. The messenger mounted the she-camel and traversed the landscape until finally arriving in Medina. It was afternoon and the messenger thinking it was resting time, avoided going straight to the Khalifa's residence and instead headed to the Prophet's mosque. Incidentally, a female servant of Hazrat Umar was passing by and asked the messenger who he was and where he had travelled from. From Alexandria replied the messenger. The servant rushed and immediately informed Hazrat Umar and on returning said, Come, the leader of the faithful calls for you. Hazrat Umar was already about to head there himself and was arranging his shawl when the messenger arrived. Hazrat Umar received news of the victory and fell down in prostration in gratitude to Allah. He then got up and went to the mosque and made an announcement that As-Salatul Jamia and all of Medina heeded to this call and arrived. The messenger informed all of the details of the victory. Thereafter, the messenger went with Hazrat Umar to his residence and the messenger was presented with a meal. Hazrat Umar inquired from the messenger, that why did you not come directly to me? And he replied that I thought you would be resting at the time. Hazrat Umar said that how did you misconceive this about me? If I rest during the day, then who would bear the responsibility of the station of Khilafat? With the conquest of Alexandria, all of Egypt was defeated. Through these battles, a large number of prisoners of war were captured. Hazrat Umar gave the following directives in a letter to Hazrat Umar regarding these prisoners. That summon all of them and tell them that they may choose to become Muslim should they wish to, or they may choose to remain upon the existing religion. If they accept Islam, they will be granted all those rights the Muslims have been afforded. Otherwise, they would have to give the jizya, which is given by all non-Muslim subjects. When this announcement was read before the prisoners, many chose to become Muslim, whilst many others chose to keep the existing faith. And whenever anyone amongst them decided to embrace Islam, the other Muslims would all raise chants of Allahu Akbar 
i.e. Allah is the greatest. And whenever anyone amongst the prisoners professed to continue their belief in Christianity, the other Christians would sing tributes of praise, leaving the Muslims feeling sorrowful. The incident of the burning of the Library of Alexandria is often passionately cited by the various Orientalists. But what really occurred? An allegation is raised regarding the victory of Alexandria by the opponents of Islam, in particular by Christians, that Hazrat Umar allegedly ordered for the great library in Alexandria to be burnt down. However, this allegation is an attempt to create the perception that the Muslims, God forbid, were opposed to literacy education and knowledge. And it is alleged that the library of Alexandria was burnt for six months continuously. In truth, from a logical standpoint and on the basis of the narrations, this allegation is entirely false and fictional. Indeed, this is a religion whose founder taught Talabul ilmi farizatun ala kulli muslim That is, it is obligatory for every Muslim to seek knowledge. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, also stated that utlubul ilma walaw bisseen That is, seek knowledge even if you have to travel to China. Furthermore, the Holy Quran in numerous verses teaches Muslims to ponder, reflect and study. Therefore, to allege against a religion with the aforementioned teachings that it advocates the burning of libraries and books is clearly contrary to logic and reason. Aside from this, many academics and researchers, including European and Christian researchers, disprove this allegation and provide evidence that supports the notion that the allegation of Muslims burning the library of Alexandria is nothing more than a fabricated and false account. Thus, an Egyptian academic, Muhammad Raza, has written in his biography of Hazrat Umar Farooq that the library of Alexandria being burnt is an allegation cited by Abu farj And this particular incident has been mentioned in his book called Mukhtasir Duwal. The author was born in 1226 AD and passed away in 1286 AD. He writes that a person by the name of Yuhanna al-Nahwi, who was known by the Muslims as Yahya, was a Coptic priest from the Jacobite sect of Christianity and who later moved away from the concept of Trinity. It is mentioned that he had requested Hazrat Amr bin al-As for some books of knowledge and wisdom from Khazayn and Malukiyat, that is, the Library of Alexandria. And Hazrat Amr bin al-As responded that he would give an answer only after seeking guidance from Hazrat Umar. This is a completely made-up account, but I am relating it so that its rebuttal can also be presented. Hazrat Umar, according to this, wrote back that if the contents of the book you have requested are in a concordance with the Book of Allah, then the Book of Allah is sufficient and the books requested serve no purpose. And if the contents of the book you have asked for are contradictory to the Book of Allah, then such literature is useless to us and thus you should get rid of such books. Hazrat Amr bin Allah sorted these books in Alexandria and burnt them in a furnace. And over the course of six months, they were fully burnt. However, this account is neither found in the history by Tabari, nor in Ibn Asir, nor by Yaqubi and Al-Kindi, nor by Ibn Abdul Hakam, and nor by Al-Baladri, nor by Ibn Khuldun. 
This has only been cited by Abu al-Farj without any source and in the middle of the 13th century AD, corresponding to the beginning of the 7th century Hijri. Professor Butler has carried out research with regards to Yuhanna Nahwi and has written that he was not even alive in 642 AD when the incident relating to the burning of the library of Alexandria is mentioned. Also, the Encyclopedia Britannica has written that Yohanna lived at the end of the 5th century and the beginning of the 6th century, whereas we know that the conquest of Egypt occurred at the outset of the 7th century. And so on this basis, Professor Butler is correct to state that Yohanna had already passed away by then. Furthermore, the person whose reference is being given to support this fabricated incident, even if for argument's sake it is taken as true, although it is false, even then the individual in question passed away well before the alleged incident. Furthermore, Dr. Hassan Ibrahim Hassan, on the authority of Professor Ismail in his book The History of Amr bin al-As writes, that the library of Alexandria did not even exist at the time. And that is because in 47 BC, the armies of Julius Caesar had without reason burnt down one of two major parts of it. And the second part of the library had also disappeared soon after. And this occurred on the behest of the bishop Theophilus in the 4th century AD. Professor Butler writes that the narrations of Abul Farsh from a historical standpoint are mere conjecture and absurd. Because if the books really had to be burned by the Muslims, they would have burned it at one time or in one go. If it had taken six months, then many of the books would have been stolen during this time. And the Arabs were not known to let such material go to ruin. Gibbon has asserted that Islamic teachings prove contrary to this account for Islam teaches to not burn the books of Jews and Christians obtained during wartime. And in terms of Islam's stance on knowledge, philosophy, poetry, sciences and other branches of wisdom separate to religious teachings, Islam encourages to avail of these. In the lands that were conquered by the Muslims, they never harmed the churches and associated artefacts and in fact allowed the non-Muslim subjects to continue practicing their faith. Thus, on the basis of all of this, can logic or reason conclude that the leader of the faithful would ever have instructed the library of Alexandria to be burnt down? Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I anhu, has replied to this allegation in his book, in Tasdiq Ibrahim Ahmadiyya. He writes that it is alleged that upon the request of Filunas Hakim and Fazil Ajal, the Muslim commander-in-chief, Amr bin al-As, inquired as to what to do with the library to the second Khalifa, the leader of the faithful. And the Khalifa replied, stating it ought to be burned down immediately and that this furnace burned continuously for six months. This is what the people allege. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I then states, that this allegation is a result of spite on part of the priests and has no truth behind it. Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih I further states that if the people ponder over this, then firstly, if this was part of the Islamic injunction, i.e. to burn books, then during the blessed era of Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu's khilafat, 
he ought to have ordered the burning of Christian and Jewish holy books, because it was these two religions with holy scriptures that were the primary addressees of Islam. Then Islam ruled over the Magians, but there is not a single instance in history that mentions the burning of their books. If this was the practice of the Khalifas of Islam, then the means of this act ought to have been found in Islam, and also nothing would stop Islam from doing this. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I further states, Secondly, if burning of religious books was the practice of Muslim sovereigns and the Muslim people, then it would be impossible to find books on Greek philosophy, Greek medicine and Greek sciences in the Arabic language. Thirdly, if the burning of books was the habit of Muslims, then the one refuting Brahini Ahmadiyya, because Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih I in this book was replying to a person who was refuting Brahini Ahmadiyya, he states that he ought to have presented an example from his own country. He would not need to cross the sea to Alexandria to find an example, because after all, which books were burned in India? Fourthly, Islam ruled in India for over 700 years, and during this time, and even until today, the Bhagavad, Ramayana, Gita, Mahabharata and other renowned religious books such as Ling Puran and Markundi still exist today and are considered to be their holy scriptures. Has anyone ever heard about the burning of any of them? In fact, some of these books have even been translated. It is a wonder, therefore, just how did the Hindus assume that the Muslims would burn their holy books? Thus ponder over this with justice. Then in Tasdeeq Ibrahim Ahmadiyya, Hazrat Mawlana Abdul Karim Sahib has also written a note in reply to this allegation. He writes that it is true that until a time when this incident had not been investigated and the actual events had not come to light, this allegation was levelled against the Muslims. However, Today, there are very few scholars who are just and adhere to the truth and still level this allegation against the Muslims. This allegation is mainly leveled owing to prejudice or being ignorant of the events. And even when this allegation was raised, they had no proof. In other words, regarding the ones who fabricated this incident were two historians born some 580 years after this alleged incident took place. But even then, they did not have any previous source. St. Croix, who has written countless books about the libraries of Alexandria, has outright rejected this incident to be false. And it seems that these books were burnt during a battle with Julius Caesar. Thus, Plutarch writes in Life of Caesar that fearing being captured by the enemy, Julius Caesar burnt his boats. And the fire spread to the extent that it burnt down the great library of Alexandria. In his book, Dictionary Relating to All Ages, Hayden has not only rejected this incident, but has also written a note. He writes that this incident is highly doubtful. The Muslims have not accepted this narration in which Hazrat Umar is reported to have ordered the burning of all books that are contrary to Islam. Some have attributed this incident to Theophilus of Alexandria who lived around 391 CE 
and others have attributed this to Cardinal Jimenez who lived around the 15th century CE. He further writes that our distinguished personality Dr. Leitner has mentioned this erroneous account in his book Sinin al-Islam And regrettably, the Honourable Doctor has erred in his research. Then in his famous book, John William Draper has mentioned this incident with the false narrators, but later he accepts that this incident was fabricated. He writes, In truth, these books were burnt during a battle with Julius Caesar, and now it can be said with full conviction that this incident is baseless and a mere tale. If there is an incident worth lamenting over, then that will be the true incident in which the bigoted Cardinal Jimenez burnt 80,000 Arabic manuscripts in the plains of Granada. When the Christians took control of Spain from the Muslims, they burnt 80,000 books from the library of Granada. Therefore, this is something to truly lament over as opposed to raising allegations against Islam. See the history of the conflict between religion and science, where this reference can be found. Nonetheless, this was the incident about burning of the library on which allegations are raised. Then there is the conquest of Barqa and Tripoli. After conquering Egypt and establishing law and order there, Amr bin Alas headed west so that the conquered lands would be safe from threat from this side. There were some Byzantine forces based in Barqa and Tripoli, and they were seizing an opportunity so that they could incite the people and subsequently attack the Muslims in Egypt. The area between Alexandria and Morocco was known as Barqa, and many towns and settlements existed in this region. And so in 22 Hijri, Amr bin al-As marched with his army towards Barqa, the land from Alexandria to Barqa was very lush and fertile and was densely populated. For this reason, until they reached there, they did not face any schemes of the enemy. When they reached there, the people agreed to a treaty on the condition of paying the jizya. Subsequently, the people of Barqa would themselves go to the governor of Egypt and pay the kharaj and the Muslims would not need to go to collect it themselves. Among the people in this region, they were the most simple. They did not instigate any discord or rebellion. Amr bin Alas left here and headed towards Tripoli, which was a city protected by forts. A large Byzantine army was stationed there. When they learned of the approaching Muslim army, they retreated to the forts and were forced to put up with the siege by the Muslims. The entire siege lasted for one month but the Muslims did not attain much success. From the rear, the sea was connected to Tripoli and there was no wall between the sea and the city. And so the Muslims became aware of the secret and a few Muslims entered the city via the sea. Upon entering, they loudly raised the slogans of Allahu Akbar, i.e. Allah is the greatest, and the opposing army was left with no other option but to take shelter in their boats. And when they ran, Amr bin Alas launched an attack and killed most of them. 
except the ones that escaped on their boats. The equipment and the wealth in the city were captured by the Muslims as spoils of the battle. And after this, Amr bin al-As spread his army in the surrounding areas. His intention was that after attaining victories in the direction towards the west, to then head towards Tunisia and Africa. And so he wrote a letter to Hazrat Umar radiallahu However, Hazrat Umar radiallahu at the time was reluctant to send the Muslim army to any new battlefront, particularly at a time when he was not convinced of complete peace and security in the lands which had been conquered from Syria to Tripoli in such a short space of time. And so, Hazrat Umar radiallahu instructed the army to remain stationed in Tripoli. During the era of Hazrat Umar radiallahu Khilafat, the Islamic Empire expanded far and wide. The Islamic Empire established itself on the world map in the form of a single country, stretching from the river Gihon and the Indus River in the east to the Sahara Desert of Africa in the west, and similarly stretched from the northern Anatolian mountains and Armenia in the north to the Pacific Ocean and Nubia in the south. Nubia is an expansive and vast area of land which is situated in the south of Egypt. The people of various nations, religions and cultures all lived in peace and security under the shade of justice and mercy established by the Muslims in the entire land that was under their control. And Islam granted people their full rights and honoured the sanctity of their lives despite the fact that those people greatly opposed their beliefs, their manner of worship, culture and their way of life. What was the standard of worship of the Muslims during the battles? Regarding this, Hazrat Muslim Ta'ala states that everything in the world attains progress gradually. Even the greatest of feats are never accomplished in a single moment. Even in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, not everyone observed the tahajjud prayer. Rather, this habit was being instilled in them gradually. And even though it is proven that sometimes the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, would not offer the tahajjud prayer during battle. However, in the era of Hazrat Umar anhu, the Muslims would offer the tahajjud prayer even in the days of battle. It is possible that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, would also wake up for the tahajjud prayer during the days of battle but it is proven that on certain occasions he would not offer the tahajjud prayer during the days of battle. However, in the era of Hazrat Umar anhu, the Muslims would offer the tahajjud prayer even in battle. Once, Heraclius decided to launch a sudden attack on the Muslims. However, after much discussion, it was ultimately decided that there was no point to launch a sudden attack because the Muslims did not sleep at night and instead would offer the tahajjud prayer. This is another hallmark of their progression which was not found in them in the early days. And thus the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, would have to greatly urge and exhort them to offer this. But later, even those who were weak had developed the habit to offer the tahajjud prayer. Then, whilst mentioning the battles which took place during the era of the Khulafai Rashidin, Hazrat Muslim Ta'ala states that Islam has not only given the command to challenge the aggressors, but owing to certain wisdoms and reasons, it has also commanded to endure the injustices. Hence, where Allah the Almighty grants permission that if one receives a slap, he can slap in return. However, if one feels that it would be wise not to retaliate, then one ought to remain quiet and not retaliate in the same manner. Thus, this argument, which is generally presented in these instances of battle, 
refutes the allegations leveled by the enemy against Hazrat Abu Bakr, Hazrat Umar and Hazrat Usman. And it is clear that Hazrat Abu Bakr did not commit any injustice. Rather, it was the Byzantine emperor who committed injustice. Hazrat Umar did not commit any injustice. Rather, it was Chosroes who committed injustice. And Hazrat Usman did not commit any injustice. Rather, it was the tribes dwelling in Afghanistan and Bukhara and the Kurds, etc., who committed the injustice. However, we do not find any argument or reason as to why Hazrat Abu Bakr, Hazrat Umar and Hazrat Usman did not forgive them. When Hazrat Abu Bakr left for battle, he could have said to the Byzantine emperor that a certain commander had committed an error and if the government apologised for it, then they would forgive them and if not, then they would proceed for battle. And he did not say to the Byzantine emperor that he or one section of his army had committed an injustice on a certain occasion. But since their teaching also states that one can forgive their enemy, therefore if they sought an apology, then they were ready to forgive. In fact, as soon as he committed an injustice, the Muslims were ready to challenge them in battle and continued to challenge them. Similarly, when the soldiers of Chosroes attacked at the border of Iraq, a battle between the companions and Chosroes was politically justified and lawful. But nonetheless, Hazrat Umar could have said to Chosroes that he himself may have not given an instruction to attack. Rather, the soldiers did this of their own accord. Therefore, the Muslims were willing to overlook this attack, providing they apologize and show remorse over their action. However, Hazrat Umar did not do this. Again, in the era of Hazrat Usman, he did not say to the enemy that though they had committed an injustice, but since their religion also teaches to forgive one's injustices, therefore they will forgive them. In fact, he immediately stood to challenge them and sent his armies and fought against them and then continued to battle against them. After all, what was the reason for this? Hazrat Muslim Aud further continues that if we ponder over this, we find that there was no other reason for this except for the fact that Hazrat Abu Bakr knew that whenever the external danger subsides, internal conflict will begin. He felt that it wasn't the Byzantine emperor who launched an attack, but it was in fact God, so that through this trial the Muslims would reform themselves and instill in them a new life and bring about a transformation in themselves. Hazrat Umar knew that it wasn't Chosroes who launched the attack, but it was in fact God who did so, lest the Muslims became neglectful and indolent and immerse themselves in material pursuits. Rather, they should always remain vigilant and ready. Hazrat Usman knew that it wasn't the various tribes who launched an attack on the Muslims, but in fact it was God. And it was so that the Muslims become vigilant and instill a new life and spirit within themselves. Hazrat Muslim Aud mentioned this in one of his sermons. And on the basis of this, Hazrat Muslim Aud then advised the Jamaat that one has to go through trials and difficulties so that they can progress in spirituality. And if we wish to uphold this principle even today, then remember that these trials and difficulties ought to bring us closer to Allah the Almighty. And it is this that then becomes a means of attaining success and victories. However, if out of fear we show reluctance in these matters and do not pay focus towards our reformation, then success cannot be attained. And when success is achieved and difficulties come to an end, even then we should continue to maintain our bond with Allah the Almighty. However, in these days particularly, we ought to pay greater attention towards Allah the Almighty and towards our spiritual betterment and progress. 
Hazrat Muslim has stated that if we fail to grasp this point, then we have not understood anything at all. Hence, this is a point which every Ahmadi must try and understand these days. <laughs> وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا مَنْ يَعْدِهِ اللَّهُ فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلُ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَنَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ ونشهد أن محمدا مبد ورسوله إباد الله رحمكم الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل واللسان ويتاع ذي القربى وينهى عن الفاشاء والمنكر والبغي يَعِزُكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ اذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ يَذْكُرْكُمْ وَادْعُوهُ يَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ وَلَذِكْرُ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرُ